The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Micah chapter 5 this evening. Micah chapter 5. We've been walking through verse by verse. Micah, a prophet sent of God to the nation of Israel. And the time frame would be around the 8th century. Uh, most conservative Bible scholars would put him writing this uh, prophecy around the time frame of 730, uh, 730 B.C. He is a contemporary with Isaiah. Isaiah is alive during this same time frame, and the much larger book of Isaiah really follows a similar pattern of themes. As we have seen through Isaiah and even Micah now, the historical setting of the country of Israel when Micah is writing, when Isaiah is writing, is a dark time in Israel's history. They have a little bit of prosperity. They have their freedom. They're being reigned and ruled under their own kings, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. And yet the, the big issue going on is the moral corruption that's occurred, uh, the religious depravity even that's crept in uh, to the very people of God, uh, though they were given the law of God, though they were given all the interventions that God gave to them, the miracles even in ages past, they, they had reached a point where injustices were occurring without any consequence within the culture by the wealthy and the rich. The poor were being neglected and abused. Um, the judges and rulers were ruling corruptly whoever could pay them, taking bribes to determine cases. Even the priests and even the prophets and teachers were simply giving messages based upon who could pay more. And so to the rich, they would give a message of blessing, and to those who couldn't pay, uh, they would give a message of impending doom and gloom. Uh, it was a very sad condition uh, that Israel found itself. Isaiah and Micah are writing a word from God to His people to call them to wake up, to call them to realize God is still in heaven looking down, seeing their corruption and their sin, and that it's a big deal in the eyes of God, that God is going to judge them, uh, call them out for their wickedness, and that God is going to bring judgment upon them because of their sin, because of their rebellious heart and their stubbornness in it even, that they would continue in it even as God would give warning after warning after warning and opportunity after opportunity after opportunity for them to turn, for them to repent and find that God is a God of grace and mercy and, and willing and ready to forgive if they'd only turn and repent. We looked last week to chapter 4 where Micah, it kind of is a transition where Micah mentions in the future, God's not done with Israel even in their sin and even in their rebellion, even through the judgment that God is going to bring upon them, God is working a greater plan that's ultimately good. God is going to redeem them. God is going to deliver them. God is going to work a, a salvation for them. God is going to restore all the glory of His people. It's a promise that God gave, a promise that is fulfilled, we're going to see tonight, in verses 1-5, through five, Fulfilled through the Messiah. Fulfilled through the Christ, this ruler who was to come. Uh, perhaps the passage that we look to tonight is 
I would argue probably the second most familiar in the book of Micah. Uh, first most familiar would be verse 8 of chapter 6. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. That verse is quoted, I think, more than any other verse in the book of Micah. And I would say the second most familiar passage in the book of Micah is what we're going to look to tonight regarding the birthplace of the Messiah. The, the Christ, the one who this deliverance would come through, would be born in Bethlehem, a small, little, unimportant city. And in this passage, what we'll see is he describes for us not only the birthplace of the Messiah, but even gives to us an idea of what the Messiah is going to accomplish, what he is going to do for his people, not only Israel, but even his people that he will draw from all the ends of the earth. Now you put yourself back in this day and age, and just think of, you know, as bad as our culture is today, and as much as we could harp on how, you know, wicked some things are, and how we've left a, a biblical, you know, worldview altogether as far as a lot of moral issues and the way things are handled, ultimately we still are nowhere near what this culture in day and age are like. Uh, we still thankfully do have a system of justice. Uh, yes, there's issues here and there. We still do have some form of morality that is out there. It's quickly eroding, undoubtedly. But, but if we can compare it to what this day and age was, for, and this is where it gets really amazing in a bad way, for the people of God, not, not a secular pagan nation, but for the very people of God who were called by God, who were given the, the Scriptures, given the prophets, given the law. Uh, this was a deep, dark, dark, dark time. And if you can imagine being one of the few faithful, one of the remnant who were remaining faithful to the Lord and seeking to honor and live for Him, this passage that we're going to look to meant much. Because this is where their hope was to come from. In the midst of a hopeless situation where they looked around their, their day and age and saw nothing but evil triumphing, they were promised of God, redemption's coming, and then they were given a particular promise that it would happen through this great ruler who was to come, through the Christ, through the Messiah. Micah is calling the people then, and even by application calling us now tonight, to hope in Christ, to hope in the Messiah and the work of what God would do through Him, that in the midst even of our day and age and the the problems, not just generally in life, but even particularly in your life that you might be weighed down by tonight as you think of sufferings and burdens that you're carrying, things that you'd rather not be walking through, things that we bear because we are still in a fallen, broken world. And sin is all around us and all within us, and sin has consequences, and this world is not what it ought to be. What do you do? Where do you find your hope? Where do you turn to find strength, to persevere, to keep on keeping on? Uh, it's, it's good to have family. It's good to have friends even, and even fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. But ultimately, all of those things in life will fail. And there's only one person who will never fail. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the Messiah. That's who we are called to hope in this evening. And so let's look to this hope that we have in this king who is also a shepherd. I'm going to call him the Shepherd King, a title, an uh, awkward title somewhat, to combine shepherding, uh, a sort of 
demeaning position, a lowly position of, of watching over a bunch of dirty sheep, unimportant sheep for the most part, compared to a king and the majesty and glory of, and power even of a king, that, that the kingship of the Messiah is something unique. That it's not ruling and reigning in, in all the glory of what we would think of as a king who is full of himself. But, but it's a king who cares deeply about his people as a shepherd watches over a flock. A shepherd king. Chapter 5, book of Micah, verse 1, and we'll just read through verse 5. Just look through these five verses this evening. Now gather yourself in troops, old daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Judgment's coming. The Assyrians will come. The Babylonians will come. There's going to be great trouble upon Israel because of their sin, because of their stubbornness before the Lord. But you, verse 2, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, who's going Goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until that time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they, they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. Micah is not only pointing Israel to hope in the coming Messiah. He is pointing us, God's word pointing us tonight, to put our hope in this Messiah. And this side of the cross we can say not merely the coming Messiah, but the Messiah who has come and who is coming again. What we find, I want us to just walk through some truths that, that Micah is revealing about the person and the work of the Christ, of the Messiah. Notice, firstly, this king was to be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, out of all places. Now, we know Bethlehem well because it's the birthplace of Jesus. But if you were to go back to that day and age, Bethlehem was a very unimportant region, little village town south of Jerusalem. It had no claim to fame apart from David's family, David being born there and his family being from there. And that was their claim to fame, which does place some very prominent, uh, very important, uh, prominent importance that we'll look at in just a moment as Jesus is the, the greater son of David. But apart from David being from there, it, this city was a, a small city, not prominent, not filled with noble people of, you know, ancestry of nobility that, that anyone would ever think of any great person having uh, being one who would be raised there and coming from this area. And that's why he says, Oh, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah. They didn't even make the list top 1,000 of the cities of Judah. Yet out of you, he says, shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. Uh, the name Bethlehem means the house of bread. There is a little bit of irony, perhaps meaning that out of the house of bread will come the bread of life, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
The only claim to fame, again, was King David, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment and how that relates to Christ. But ultimately, its significance really lies in its insignificance, that God did not choose Jerusalem to be the birthplace of the Messiah, of the Christ. That's what an Israelite would have expected, that the Prince of Peace ought to come from, be born from. In a sense, they really didn't think about him being born. We'll talk about that also in a moment. But, but ought to some way be more associated with the city of peace, Jerusalem. Not, not Bethlehem. And yet Micah writes 730 years before the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, Bethlehem will be the birthplace of the Lord Jesus. God often uses the insignificant to do the significant things in order that no glory is robbed of His name. That no glory wrongly be taken by people and thinking, well, goodness, of course, you know, Bethlehem, that's the city of, of, of a, a noble ancestry. That's the city of prominence and human might and human wisdom and human power. No, no glory could be given and attributed to man given this birthplace of the Messiah. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, it says, But God's chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world. And the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are true, that no flesh should glory in His presence. Again, I said, I said earlier, the only claim to fame that Bethlehem could have was there was this unlikely king, this boy that was the youngest of, of his brothers, who Samuel, the prophet, went and was commanded of God to go to this small little town and anoint the next king of Israel after King Saul's disobedience before the Lord. And you know the story, I hope well. Uh, Samuel goes and he, he sees the oldest son of Jesse, and this son was the oldest of the family, and and, and Samuel looked at him and thought, surely this is the man the Lord's anointed. He, he looked like a king. And for the, in that day and age, what was primary in a king would be a man of might and strength, even in his appearance. He looked like a strong man who could be a great ruler, a great leader. God says, no, he's not the one. I look at the heart, not the outside. The next one comes. And no, that's not the one. And the next one, 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 and the next one. And seven times. And then... Jesse's uh, apparently out of sons, and Samuel's thinking, well, what's going on? We, we need, the, God says, you, you, one of your sons is going to be the, the next king of Israel. Do you have any more sons? And even his dad thought it unlikely that David would be the one. And he says, well, I've got one, one more, my youngest, but he's out watching over the sheep. He was a shepherd, go figure. Samuel says, go get him. And he comes, and his appearance was ruddy, the Bible says. Uh, it was, that would be the opposite of a strong-looking individual that you would look at and say is a ruler, is a king, is a man who can lead men. He didn't look the part. And yet God said he's the one, an unlikely candidate. And you think a little bit later in the story of David's life. David goes to give some food to his brothers who were at, at war. And he shows up on the scene there, and there's this giant, uh, enemy of the Philistines, Goliath there, standing taunting the Israelite army and the God of Israel even. And, and David's in shock. You know, why is nobody standing up against this giant? You've got God on your side, don't you? And he's the one that goes before Saul and says, I'll fight him. And it's a sort of funny picture what happens. 
King Saul says, you can't go like you dressed. Here, put my armor on. And, and, and if you can imagine this ruddy sort of little guy in this king's armor, he, he didn't fit the part. It, it was so baggy on him that it was comical. He, he even says, I can't, I can't fight in this. I can't hardly move in all of this armor. And he says, no, I'll go in my you know, cloak with a sling and, a, and a five stones that he picks up out of the tree. He wasn't going in the power and might of man. He wasn't going to receive the glory to himself. He stood and he faced Goliath, what, in the name of the, of the God of Israel that Goliath was making a mockery of. And lo and behold, one little stone goes round and round and round and round and round and then through the air and right between his eyeballs and knocks him out. And David pulls his sword, the Goliath sword, out of his sheath and cuts his head off. I love that story as a kid. We always leave the cutting the head off part out of the you know kids' version of the story, but in the Bible, pretty gruesome. Uh, but such is war and such is life. Uh, Goliath was defeated. There's there's a promise that follows that a little bit later. And God says to David, "I'm going to make of you a kingdom that will never end. One of your descendants." will be a king, and he will be a king of kings and a lord of lords, and his kingdom will be the kingdom of all kingdoms. It will be an eternal kingdom. It will be an everlasting kingdom. It's called the Davidic covenant. And lo and behold, we get to Matthew. And what we find Matthew is wanting us to see, as we looked at just a number of weeks ago, walking through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is making the point strongly. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the greater son of David. He is the one that that has come to fulfill that promise of a a Davidic king that will rule and reign on the throne for all eternity over an everlasting kingdom. And specifically, one of the things Matthew hits on very early is this prophecy from Micah. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, a little bit of a correlation that you can remember in your mind. Um, Nothing special or conspiracy theory on the numbers in the Bible. Don't get off like some people do on weird tangents with Bible verse numbers. Those aren't inspired. Those were added uh, just a few uh, centuries ago even. Um, But a good little memory to to memorize, Micah 5.2, prophecy fulfilled in Matthew 2.5. Just reverse it. Go to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 5. And we pick up in the story... The wise men are coming to Herod, the king, Roman-appointed king even, um, there in Israel, that they reveal to him, we're we're seeking the the Messiah to come to worship him. A star has been uh, placed in the sky that we have been following. And Herod, of course, wants to know who is this supposed king who might be a threat to my reign, to my rule. And he inquired of his chief priests and the scribes and all of his wise and religious boys, people that he could get. He brings them and says to them, you know, where is it that the Christ is to be born? And they knew this prophecy from Micah. Look to Micah chapter, or I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 2 and verse 5. So they said to him, and Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so they quote the passage very loosely. Some believe they bring in a little portion of another passage that they sort of integrated there to come up with that compilation as it's written there. It wasn't a direct verbatim quote, 
um, from Micah, but the beginning of it was combined with another passage that summarizes even this passage. He's going to be a king, a great ruler, and a great shepherd, even emphasized. But he's going to be born in Bethlehem of all places. God revealed that 700 plus years. Think about 700 years for a moment. You realize our country, our country, oh, I wrote it down, it's 200 and almost 250 years ago. Am I right on that? I can't find it in my notes. But 200 something years ago, almost 250, I think it's 240 something years ago, that, that our country was founded, that George Washington was walking the earth, for goodness sake, as you think of history. 500 years ago is a long time. 700 700 years ago. You'd be going back to the dark ages in, in human history 700 years ago. 700 years passed from God saying there will be the Messiah, the Christ, who will be born in Bethlehem. And it's happened. God is fulfilling His promise, fulfilling His word. In this fulfillment of this prophecy of it being Bethlehem, realize two things and we'll go to the next point. God is showing the humility of the Messiah. God is showing that He would be one who is coming in a humble birth, coming in a humble way, and even coming in this first coming to give His life a ransom upon Calvary. And notice secondly also in this uh, that the Messiah is connecting, um, making a connection with King David. That he is the greater son. He is the promised seed of David. Secondly, not only is the king um, going to be born in Bethlehem, the king who will come. Notice, secondly, this king will come and he will do the will of God. Uh, He's coming for a purpose that isn't just and isn't even primarily for Israel. Interesting in Micah, notice the way, go back to Micah chapter uh, 5. Notice the way that it's worded, God speaking here. Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to who? Come forth to me, God says. The one to be ruler in Israel. That this work that the Messiah would do would be first and foremost the work of the Father, by the will of the Father. That it is a a plan that God is carrying forth. That God is the author and the designer even of this plan of redemption and establishing all that He would establish through the work of the Christ, the work of the Messiah. He was sent by the Father to do the will of the Father. It's not by accident the words of Jesus in John 6.35 and verse 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And Jesus said these words, for I have come down from heaven to do, uh, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all that he has given me I should not lose anything, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. Micah prophesied about the work that the Messiah would do, being the will of the Father, first and foremost, above all else, even above the, the redemption that would be accomplished for mankind. He didn't come just for us. 
It wasn't just for us He died upon the cross. The Son came to do the will of the Father. He did so to glorify His Father in heaven as our utmost example and even as an utmost revelation to us of the glory of God, of the worship that God alone is due. Notice thirdly, this king wouldn't be of, of human origin. Even though he would be born in Bethlehem, the, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Messiah being one that existed prior to Bethlehem, it's mentioned all the way back in the Old Testament in, in Micah. And notice what it says there in the next verse, or right there in the next phrase of verse 2, rather. Whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. This, this made many, even in the day of Christ, think that the Messiah would not be one who was ever born. But the Messiah would be one who was sent down from God, as an angel was sent down. That, that even in John chapter 7, when Jesus is confronting some people who were struggling about Jesus saying that He's the Son of God, and others saying that He truly is the Christ, the Messiah... It says, now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this truly is the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. They knew that the Christ was going to be one who was not of human origin, but they never could imagine how God would work it out. The unlikeliness of what we read in the Gospel of Matthew, a virgin giving birth to a baby, and that baby being the incarnate Son of God, the, the Son of God who took on human flesh, who was born in Bethlehem, though he was from Nazareth, being raised in Nazareth, uh, being from Nazareth in his life when they came to know him, he was Jesus of Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy of Micah, and yet we can say with a surety, no, his origins are from of old. He is from everlasting, that he was not created there in the womb of Mary. A miraculous thing happened. God, through the Holy Spirit, created that life. And in that life, God the Son became incarnate. He took on human form. Philippians chapter 2 uh, he left the, the glory of, of heaven, did not consider that a thing to, to hold on to, but made himself of no rap, reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, if I were Peter, James, or John, or Matthew, or Luke, and I'm sitting there, first century, and I am thinking, reading the Old Testament Scriptures, I want to create a figure that I am going to spread around as really the Messiah, and I'm going to create this offshoot of Judaism based upon a fictional person named Jesus, and we're going to all make it up that He's the Messiah. You realize that's what a lot of people explain away the Bible as being. Nothing but some... Uh, Jerusalem Israelites that, that got together and came up with this concocted story about this individual, this fabricated story about Jesus. If that happened, i got to hand it to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. They were some pretty crazy, creative individuals. And they're actually kind of foolish because they created a totally 
crazy story that's so much more unbelievable than it would have been just to abide by the common interpretation of how things would work out based upon what people were reading in the Old Testament. The way that the life of Christ fulfills these prophecies in and of itself is an argument to say this story is not concocted. It's so unbelievable and so out of the normal way that we would have thought that it would have been fulfilled and yet at the same time so perfectly fulfilled that only it could be it only could be true. That this must have come from God, the way that it all unfolded and the way it all unwinds. The disciples never could have made up such a story unfolding in such a way to fulfill all of these passages, all of these prophecies, some of which were seemingly at a contradiction of one another, and yet in the life of Christ, we see it fulfilled. Out of Egypt I've called my son. What did I thought he was from Bethlehem. Wait a second, he's from he, he's the Nazarene, he's from Nazareth as well, Matthew says. And how is he from Nazareth? How is he from Bethlehem fulfilling that prophecy? How is it that Joel is somehow speaking about him and out of Egypt I've called my son? They were some mighty creative individuals. If they fabricated all of this, or or Jesus is real, he truly is the Christ, the Messiah. And all the craziness of an incarnate uh, incarnate Son of God, the second person of the Trinity becoming incarnate. All the craziness of a virgin birth and of a, a tax that uh, they had to travel down to their home city of Bethlehem, so he's born in Bethlehem. And then uh, Herod and the, the slaughtering of the innocents that caused them to flee to Egypt. And then Nazareth being their hometown that they went back to and being raised there in Nazareth. All, all of these ways in which these seemingly contradicting prophecies were fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, they, they, they speak to us of the truthfulness of it all. This king is from everlasting, though he would be born and come out of, of Bethlehem. Jesus affirmed that. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who became flesh, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one who said before Abraham was, I am. He is the one who is from old, whose goings forth are from old, who is from everlasting. Notice fourthly, this king will shepherd the people of God. He's going to be the shepherd of God's people. Look to the next verse. Therefore he shall give them up until that time that she who is in labor is given birth. Now some speak of that as maybe relating to the Virgin Mary giving birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. I I think that's just a reference back to verse 9 of the previous chapter. For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. And he's speaking forth of the judgment of God and their waywardness and their sin being like the pangs of delivery that someday as they go through this is going to lead forth to delivery, to redemption, to salvation that's going to come forth. And they're in those pangs of delivery. Uh, I think Romans 11 even points us to that. We won't dive into any of this for sake of time and sanity this evening, but Romans 11 uh, speaks about when the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And this age of the church comes to, to, to fulfillment, comes to its end. Uh, there will be a turning back of ethnic Israel uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. They will come to see that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Messiah. That remnant will be saved. The remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. We as the church, as Gentiles, have even been grafted into this 
body. And then it says in verse 4, And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall abide. That he is going to lead and rule and reign as a shepherd does over his flock. As Psalms 23 even pictures as the the great shepherd over our souls that, that leads and guides and provides and protects and sustains us. It will be a place of redemption and a place of restoration for the people of God. And notice lastly, the last phrase is there at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. The king is going to bring peace to the ends of the earth. For now he shall be great. Not just in Israel. Not just to restore Jerusalem. But to the ends of the earth. To all nations. To all peoples. To the very ends of the earth. And this one shall be peace. Or even more literally, and this shall be peace. That, that when Christ comes, He is the Prince of Peace. He will bring about a perfect peace with God first and foremost. And we see that even in His first coming and the work that He accomplishes by dying upon a cross. And, and all of the scribes and the Pharisees and experts in the law couldn't figure it out. But how is how is this truly the Messiah? He's dying upon a cross. How is, even the disciples didn't get it prior to the resurrection. How can He be the Christ that we knew that He was if He's hanging upon a cross? But in that cross, he's, he's bringing peace. He's making peace between God and man. He's providing a way where sinful man can be brought to peace with holy God. And now we look forward to that second coming where He brings that peace to fruition in all of creation. Someday, Revelation 21, He's going to make all things new. There will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth. There will be a new Jerusalem. He will completely redeem and will completely restore. He will establish an, a perfect eternal peace. You say, what is peace? It's more than just an absence of conflict. Peace, that word shalom, is ultimately what we long for as we think of the best and most fulfilling things in life. To have a, a life where everything is not just mediocre, but everything is great. True shalom, true wholeness of life, true blessing and favor of God in life, the new heaven, the new earth. It, it will be that. No more pain, no more suffering. Because there will be no more sin. All the former things having passed away. He is the Prince of Peace. The Kingdom of Peace will be brought to completion when He comes. He's come for us, and He is coming again. Where is your hope tonight? Through whatever you're walking through. I'll close with this. There were three responses back then that people had, and there's three responses right now that you are having to what we just looked to about hoping in Christ, hoping in the Messiah. There's outright rejection, and some just say, that's just, that's just fairy tale. They outright deny it. And then a second reaction is just indifference. You leave thinking, well, that's some neat stuff in the Bible, but it makes no real impact upon your life. It doesn't change your hope at all tonight. And then there's the third way to respond, and that's in faith, which is what the call tonight is, is to respond in faith. And say no matter what you're going through tonight, no matter what you're facing, what burden and sorrow you're bearing, I will hope in the Lord. I will hope in Christ. 
hope that lasts beyond the grave, a hope that is in a kingdom that is to come, a city of God which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And that gives you strength to keep on keeping on. That gives you joy, even as tears may come down your face. Are you hoping in Christ? I pray you are. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you for this word written so long ago. Lord, unfolded completely and perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the privilege of being able to look back at His first coming and seeing how so much is fulfilled then. Lord, we better understand even and better interpret the prophecies of Micah than Micah himself was able to do, seeing how it's all unfolded. And yet we also realize there's a greater fulfillment yet to come. Jesus will come again. Lord, we do long for that day when you make all things right, when you do away with all pain and all suffering and all all the burdens that this life bears. And so, Lord, we, we ask you to give us a hope, a hope in Christ. I pray for any that are struggling tonight. Um, give them a joy in the Lord. Give them a confidence in you and you only. Uh, strength to persevere, to keep on keeping on, knowing that day, uh, the day of the Lord is coming. Pray more than all, if there be any here that don't know you as Christ, as Lord, as Savior, uh, I pray that tonight, even now, they would turn, repent, and believe upon Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen.